Valley. We have one more program after this, the Encore program on next week, Sunday, uh, which is a really great program. A lot of uh, things that we did this season and some new things uh, for our retiring dancers and whole company. Uh, let me introduce our guest. We're so fortunate to have, uh, well, two living composers, three living composers, right, on the program? Right. Uh, uh, Christina Skene for Kion Ballet is in New York. She had a baby, I think, what, four days before uh, our orchestra rehearsal. So right. <laughs> we, read, uh, we read the piece early upstairs so that uh, Kion could have an advanced listen to the live orchestra music and she was on a little screen. So it was kind of fun having our, our composer there in the rehearsal running between her musical baby and her baby in New York. So we have uh, with us Oliver Davis, our composer choreographer for Veil Between Worlds. Uh, Oliver graduated from the Royal Academy of Music in 1994. His debut album was recorded by the London Symphony. His second album, Seasons, was released in 2015 and was charted in the UK Top 10. Uh, fourth album, Liberty, was released February 2018, and this reached number one in the iTunes classical chart and also classical FM album of the week. So it's quite a, quite a nice lineup of things. We're so glad you're here with us. It's a very beautiful ballet, which you'll you hear in just about an hour and a half. Uh, Edward Lian is a choreographer of Veil Between Worlds, former dancer of the New York City Ballet, uh, Netherlands Dance Theater, and has worked uh, as an international reputation choreographer of the last decade of creative works for the Bolshoi, Houston Ballet, Joffrey Ballet, Kirov, New York City Ballet, and of course, uh, Pacific Northwest Ballet. He was born in Taiwan and raised in Marin County, right where I'm near, next to where I live. Beautiful place. And then began his dance training at the age of five and later joined the New York City Ballet. He is artistic director of Ballet Met and received an Emmy Award for his short dance film, Walter. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. You all know our dear friend, Kian, who is uh, now PMB's Associate Artistic Director and Choreographer of Throws of Increasing Wonder. Keon was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and was trained at the Baltimore School for the Arts uh, in Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. And he's, one of his favorite roles is Puck, which uh, we just did Midsummer Night's Dream, and we were coaching the, the new uh, generation of Pucks coming up. He retired as a soloist in 2015, just after his retirement, uh, served on the faculty of our school, and he has choreographed works for PMB, PB School, Ballet Arkansas, Atlanta Ballet, and staged works by Twyla Tharp. Most recently, um, Twyla put him in charge of her revival of uh, Waiting at the Station, which is a terrific, a terrific piece that you brought back to life so beautifully. And my friend here, who you also probably know, Josh Archibald Cyber, is our staff conductor and pianist. He's the only second person to have this position after um, Alan Dameron. And I think you've been here for, is this your fourth season? It's kind of confusing with COVID, but. Right, yeah, four including. Four. And you're a graduate of Stanford University and is in the doctoral program in composition at the University of Washington. So, uh, so glad you're on our staff. It's, 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 we have a lot of fun together. So kicking it off, I'm gonna hand the mic to you and we'll have a <coughs> conversation. Excellent, thank you, Emil. Uh, we'll just pass around a couple of questions. It really is such an exciting thing to be able to choreograph music that's written by living composers and also to be able to use live music throughout this process, either uh, in the case of, um, of Ed and Oliver's piece in rehearsals, um, and then ever so recently uh, when Emil had the orchestra rehearsal for Keon's piece, we had a recording that is now being used and we're kind of getting real-time feedback about tempos and little thises and thats that are working for the dancers and then evolve on stage. 
So it's, it's really special to be able to cultivate that sort of relationship between composer and, and choreographer. So I'd love to toss the first question to Ed and Oliver, just about how the two of you got to know each other and, and how your collaborations uh, started. You want to start with that? Okay. <laughs> um, hello. Well, I think at the very beginning, I, just, I got a message from you online saying, um, I'd like to put on this ballet, it's, it's going to be in um, Singapore, and so, you know, I, I wanted to use several pieces of your music from, from your... Oh, sorry. That's better. Um, and uh, <laughs> so he used several pieces of my music for a, a ballet in Singapore, and, um, and then I think it was around that time, 2017, everybody said that um, San Francisco Ballet have got a festival called Unbound, and could you write a piece for it? And so San Francisco Ballet commissioned me, and that's, that was really the beginning of our relationship, wasn't it, I think? Yes. And, and that process, as it, was a, it was a very exciting thing for me. I, I, I come from a world of, although I was classically trained, I then was then scoring TV and film, I got very tired of that, and I wanted to, I was sort of yearning for classical and, and so on, and so then when we, you know, started working together, but it's just, it's sort of like light bulb moment, and and what tends to happen, and you can correct me, is that Edouard kind of inspires me, and then I've got to try and write something that then inspires him, the choreographer, and it's that is a, a, a very interesting relationship because, you know, I. I you're, you inspire me to write things by saying that at this point we're going to have these male solos, or, or this is a part of der here, so we need to have this to be much slower, and this is you know roughly the duration. The, these are my feelings about it, and then there's a you know put a lot of emotion into it, um, and to, to describe to me the composer what what you're wishing for. Um, and unlike you know scoring a film or or a television episode or whatever, you know the thing is that you were approaching me because you liked my sound from the beginning, so it's not as if I had to suddenly do an impression of what I thought you might want. You know, it, it, it was a case of just thinking about where your original feelings for this piece and, and where you wanted to go with it. So, how far am I? I think he's done very well. <laughs> very well, very well. But you know, Ollie and I haven't seen each other um, since a very long time. We. I think this is our third commission mm. with each other. Uh, when we first worked together for San Francisco Ballet, their Unbound Festival, I was really grateful that uh, the director at the time uh, agreed to have a new composition. Because new compositions are difficult to come by, not only in terms of the price tag itself, but the time and making sure that you're able to allocate the time for the musicians, the rehearsals, the being able to plan ahead of time to a commission score. It takes time to compose. Mm -hmm. But I just want to have one caveat. We haven't seen each other in a long time since COVID, so he forgot that my name is just Edward and not Edward like my <laughs> board members do. They always add like seven A's where it's Edward. Yeah. So, so not the time. <laughs> you see the double act going on here. Just, just saying, if we were a double act, I'm Cher. 
<laughs> but I digress. Um, the the concept that in terms of working, the first time that I did a composition with the with a composer was this collaboration with Juilliard and the Choreographic Institute at New York City Ballet, and. Um, that was my first foray into uh, understanding what that actually means. And what's wonderful about um, Ollie is that he was very much open to a story, um, an arc. Even with my non-narrative ballets, I like to have a concept. Whether it's written in the playbill um, or not, and it's just m much more of an open-ended uh, thematic idea. Uh, it was amazing to be able to structure this piece together in uh, an emotional arc in a, uh, a story that both of us were able to draw from, not only to compose the music, but to compose the steps to the music. And I come from the house of Balanchine and Jerome Robbins. And uh, what's amazing about um, coming from that heritage, it teaches you very quickly that music is first. And that um, the steps and the idea is to enhance the music. And hopefully then the music will enhance the dance. So. With we um, recorded this, I think it was the first year of COVID, was it uh, 2020? 2020, yeah. And it was uh, delayed, of course, uh, uh, first full performance until, until tomorrow. Um, did did uh, we record it on stage uh, here? I think we had five musicians. Oliver's piece is a, is a violin concerto of sorts, from solo feature piece for sure. Uh, so we had Mike Lim, who's our, our concertmaster and our wonderful soloist, and I think we had Five people spaced very far out because we had some woodwinds and it was so early in, in the pandemic. Um, and then I think we had a click track and you added more uh, sample sounds That's right. yeah. behind it. Did, um, did the, the music or, because I know you revised the score slightly, did the music or the dance ch change since 2020 or is it pretty much the same? The, the music is pretty much the same. I, I, there are some tweaks I made, I recorded it with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Uh, the end of 2022, I made some some changes there when we recorded it. Um, but in terms of the, the the timings, I always have to keep it exactly the same because obviously, once you know a choreographer a chore is, is, is choreographed to your music, you can't then change it and just say, oh, let's just take those bars out, let's move that around, or oh, let's make that fast patch really fast. It's like, no, people are going to be falling over. So you've got to, to think about that. And, and so the things you can change are things like orchestration and bring things out or make more space for things, but, but really beyond that, it's, it's not, not big changes. There was a lot of changes. <laughs> there was a lot of changes. I came I had an opening of time to be able to at least start my piece uh, in December of like 2019 for five days. So I flew here and I had already a certain concept. Um, and it was a really big cast piece. It was like 17, 18 dancers. Um, 
And then that changed. And uh, then we were planning on trying to schedule this piece to be choreographed for, to open at, I think it was Sun Valley uh, Dance Festival. And then that didn't happen. And then uh, PNB launched this brilliant um, digital season. And so they kind of schooled me very quickly on the, the concept of how to make um, split screen and divide the dancers in pods. And um, so, yeah, that happened. And uh, it was, it was difficult, but it was really amazing to see how we can be able to use creativity on our side and still um, have and be inspired. And then I was so grateful that Peter brought this ballet back because it was, uh, it gave me another opportunity to at least quickly try to tweak it so that people could cross and it didn't look like a pandemic ballet. <laughs> and uh, what was wonderful is that these dancers are just ferociously fast. I had, um, the first three days was just to get my legs um, in my bearing and then um, just one more week to get the second cast and make the changes. But uh, it's, it, it's definitely been a journey. <laughs> um, I'd love to turn the I'd love to turn the mic on, and I would like to turn a question over to Keon, uh, kind of a similar question that we were just talking about here. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you came across Christina Spinet's music, or, or her personally, and, and sort of how that relationship began. Yeah, of course. Um, well, um, Ed mentioned the New York Choreographic Institute, so I went there in 2008, and I was also paired with a composer, and that composer was Christina Spinet. Um, at the time, she was at Juilliard, and we had been tasked to make like a 12-minute piece, and I think I had maybe a week or maybe two weeks to make it. Um, and so that's the first time we met, and she made this piece that I named Strung About. It was a string quartet, um, and I had five dancers. And, you know, working with a composer is a really special relationship. Um, as a choreographer, for me, music always comes first. I also have that Balanchine heritage where, you know, I like my audiences to see the music in the dance. Um, and for a long while, you know, going on like iTunes or Spotify to like try to find something that's exactly what you want, it's like you can never get that. It's like, oh, I just wish that would have been like, you know, like four bars more or I wish we could cut this part out and I don't really love that part. And when you're working with a composer, you actually have the ability to shape the piece with the ideas that you have in mind exactly the way you want. And there's really nothing like that, having that opportunity. So Christina got stuck with me in 2008. That was our first collaboration. Um, and then I brought her out to PMB to do my second, my third main stage work at PMB, which is a ballet called Impulse. Um, and she wrote a piece for that. And then she just wrote Throws of Increasing Wonder. Wow, so yeah. for, um, for the, our two choreographers, does the music come first, or do you have ideas of certain steps or a certain type of mood that you want to set that you then pick the music that goes with your, your idea that you already have uh, for the stage? For me, the music has to come first. I'm, I'm that kind of choreographer. I have to listen to the music, and you know, I dream in colors. And so as I'm listening to music, I see colors, and I, that's sort of my jumping off point. And they kind of swirl around, and you know, you hear the music, and you're like, well, that could be a jump, or that could be a turn. This is a group of people. This is a duet. Um, and so it's critical for me to have the music 
before starting my creative process that sort of drives my inspiration. What about you, Ed? Uh, for already composed music, yeah, you just kind of live with it. And it, it kind of comes to you in terms of the structure. The music kind of basically tells you uh, how you want to structure the music, at least to me. And then for composed music and working with uh, a new composition, it's, it's a conversation. And it really starts with the idea. Um, I, you know, where is, where is, uh, what do we want to say together? Yeah. Uh, and then, then we get to more of the structure. So an opening, you know, the next section, I see this, I would love a duet to be next. Uh, what do you think about having a faster, more group dance to solos and then another potida and etc. And what's interesting about this particular collaboration is that the, the piece of music, the infinite ocean that we created together, uh, it was a little bit more somber. <laughs> and uh, in the conversation for this piece, uh, we really wanted to have it be close the ballet more upbeat. Yeah. We wanted it to be a little bit more up tempo and bright and whimsical and um, have it be a little bit more joyous versus um, drama. And that was a nice, you know, change. Yeah. I do jolly, don't I? I mean, I'm, I'm, I am jolly. jolly. <laughs> I'm annoyingly yeah, happy as a person. I think that's, just, well, I think you and I would get along perfectly. I'm annoyingly <laughs> happy as well. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> You know, there's, I've never read about Tchaikovsky, who's one of my absolute favorite composer, and he would have a sort of really rigid schedule. He'd wake up in the morning, he'd have his breakfast, he'd do his correspondence, he would have a certain time from this hour to this hour, he'd sit and write music, he'd go take a walk, and he'd have lunch. And, you know, you think of like in the movies where the composer's sitting with manuscript paper in the park and waiting for something to descend upon there. <laughs> to start writing. What is, what is your, your motive going about writing? You can't just wait for inspiration because it is waiting, waiting, wait. No. Well, like, like all annoyingly happy people, I wake up very early. <laughs> so, <laughs> but essentially, as a composer, you, you know, you're a gregarious loner. You know, you're doing this, this solitary thing. I get up around 5.36 a.m. And um, all my, my best stuff is after, you know, a couple of strong coffees. And uh, and then you know that's that's really in the mornings when I write everything. I wrote, I think Tchaikovsky got it wrong. Yeah, he did only add me at the beginning of the day. It's such a mistake. But no, um, so I, I, no, I I write most of the material by about one two o'clock. I start to fade, and, and occasionally I get a second sort of bow. Like a win. Yeah. Well, there's so much that you can learn. Um, in composition, Josh studied composition. I was a composition major in my last school I went to. And you can learn absolutely all the nuts and bolts of writing music. Uh, I found, except for one, is writing a, a great melody or for other the term, a catchy tune. Uh, and you are, you excel at writing 
uh, tunes that's, that really stick with you that here and, yeah. just, and that's, that's that's most of my job is, is writing catchy tunes. That's what I got <laughs> always applied for. Which sounds very I mean, it sounds sort of banal on one level, but no. that's what's what I did. What did you did you learn it? Or just no. like it just it's a one of those gifts you have to give. I, I, I wouldn't call it a gift even. You just it's just I think what it was, um, it's a bizarre combination that um, so my, my mother's side of the family was all about, like, my grandmother was a dance teacher, my granddad was uh, in a fifth army fight. So that was all kind of, and my mum was a harpsichordist. That's all about rhythm. And my dad's side was all about melody. And he was a violinist, and everything was about tenor arias, and, you know, violin concertos and so on. So I'm, I'm literally, I'm such a mix of the two. So there's tune, but it's very kind of rhythmical tunes. Rhythmical tunes are catchy. I think that's the simplest way. Well, in the English, English singing tradition, composing tradition, it's all filled with great tunes from hymns, church hymns, and Bonway and with Elgar. It's, it's a singing, it's, yes. a singing culture. Yeah, it is. There's a culture in that one. Yes, right. So, you know, um, since we're all live performers, um, I'm a big champion, as is Josh and Oliver, of live music being performed by live people. Um, but sometimes you don't always have that uh, luxury, depending on the company. And I heard a while ago that uh, dancing to recorded music is like kissing over the telephone. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the same thing. <laughs> um, but since we have our two choreographers here, is there, what, what is the difference for you between live, um, live music and recorded music? <laughs> well, I've never heard of that before, but I, I, I guess I'm pretty good at kissing over the top. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I, unfortunately, my company, uh, Ballet Med, uh, we only are able to have live music for certain programs that we really kind of fundraise for. Next season, we'll have live music for Romeo and Juliet which is a, a huge blessing. And um, it's so interesting because I grew up uh, with live music every day. Uh, New York City Ballet, we had live music for all our rehearsals. Um, and then you go downstairs to the stage and you'd have three rehearsals with three different pieces, uh, whether it's uh, a new work, Balanchine and Robbins, and it was all to live orchestra just for rehearsal every day. And it, unfortunately, I didn't realize how much I took it for granted and what magic it is yeah. to have live music. But um, Emil, apparently, I've become very good at making out over the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it depends on the type of phone you use. <laughs> I'm just so good, I don't need my phone anymore. <laughs> No, it is, it is brilliant to be able to come back to Hindi and just kind of fall into this inspiration. Uh, incredible artists, incredible musicians. Uh, it's, it's really a huge blessing. We're very lucky here. And that's, that was started with our founders, uh, uh, Ken Francia, uh, from their New York City Ballet aesthetic, and we're, I think, the only company of our size that has a full-time orchestra for all of our programs, so that's a, yeah. it's a real gift, it really is, and the orchestra is a, it's a terrific group, as you know, if you've heard yeah. Historically, Pacific Northwest Ballet and um, 
both Kent and Francia were the ones first to create in the United States a ballet orchestra. Right. And they really set the tone, um, positive and negative throughout the country. But for ballet, very, very positive because yeah. it really created the ability for ballet companies to have live music and to set the tone for dance. It's yeah. just incredible. And I grew up here at PMB. I joined the company in 2001. And so my whole experience as a professional dancer was having a ballet orchestra. Um, there's really nothing like that music coming from the pit to really sort of move you around the stage. Um, the switch to recorded music um, is a jarring one, and it's definitely felt by the dancers. Um, when you use recorded music, there's something that you can't feel, that you can feel when the orchestra is playing it, um, especially when there's things like um, heavy bass or big brass. That feeling just fills you up when it's live, and it's just not the same when it's canned music. Um, and you know, for me, working with Christina on this new composition, the way that it came to me first was through an electronic file. Um, and the electronic file sort of like makes everything kind of flat, so all the instrumental sounds sound the same, they're on the same level. And the first orchestra rehearsal I went to with Emil last Thursday, it was kind of like, oh my god, there are all these sounds that I didn't even realize were written in the score. And they just, it's like, if I would have known that this sound was there or that sound was there, I might have made different choreographic choices. Um, but there, there really is nothing like the live music, and especially our PMB orchestra, which is, you know, top-notch for sure. I'd love to circle back to when we were talking about Oliver's talent for catchy tunes. I'd love to ask Ed and Keon both, um, since you are multiple-time collaborators with your respective composers, what is there about their music in particular that either personally or from a choreographic perspective, or those two definitely don't have to be separate at all, uh, what keeps bringing you back to Oliver and Christina? Christina's music is joyous, and I think that the, the way that Christina and I connected was over our combined energy. Um, I'm a person who has a lot of energy. I like my, my dances to be fast and, and filled with lots of movement. Um, I, I am a choreographer who likes to choreograph almost to every single note that I hear in the composition. And so Christina is a composer who writes music that is really exciting and music that makes you feel happy. And this is why I keep going back to Christina because um, she has this knack for um, creating all different kinds of moods in her music, but all of them spark joy, um, especially within me and my inspiration. Um, she also really loves rhythms, and I like to work in rhythms as well. Um, and so between the joy and the rhythms, we found a really good spot, a really good landing spot. And so, I mean, I think, I think that this will not be our last collaboration together. I'll keep going back to Christina because she knows me so well. Um, you know, I called her on the phone and I said, hey, I'm making a new ballet for PMB. I want it to feel like a celebration. I need you to write me an overture that feels like tissue paper being thrown into the air. I need you to write me, I need you to write me a, a mysterious duet like you're searching through to try to figure out what this thing is. And then I need you to write me a big finale. And she was like, got it. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's like when you can just kind of talk in sort of like broad strokes with someone that you have a relationship with and they just get it, 
um, that feels amazing because you don't have to explain every single thing, you know? And it's like, I say a couple of words, I say, you know, it's gonna be pink, it's gonna be aqua. And she's like, okay, I know what you, I know what you mean. So it, it's nice to have that kind of shorthand um, with your composer. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, I think for myself, is, it's really just about emotions. Uh, when I hear a piece of music, uh, if I can feel, if it really touches, moves, inspires me, then uh, it, it, I, it's hard for me to describe, and Ollie's music is that. The first time I heard it, I was like, oh, and plus we are both um, obsessed with strings. And uh, yeah, it's just that, that um, I guess, that unknown quality that drives you and attracts you to something. And um, the minute that I spoke to him uh, over the phone, it was, uh, we just got along really well and we got each other very quickly. And um, to me, is that I, because I work in so many different mediums where it's not just live music, that uh, I want to pick a piece that has that same amount of power that you could have with live music. And I want to imagine if it is to live music, that it would be that much more powerful. Because if you think about it, I mean, we're mostly water, and music is vibration. And you can't synthesize vibration and sound the way it can be done live. It's just not possible. Yeah. And beyond us being these, um, what I believe, spiritual beings, but we're physical beings, that responds to these scientific um, changes into our body. So it's those two components that really brings, I think, music together. I love what Ed said there about feeling. You know, it's like, I mean, I think all of you experience it as well. When you listen to a piece of music and it makes you feel a certain emotion, you, it's like, um, it's transcendent, right? And so I think that having that feeling um, when you listen to a piece of music for a choreographer is particularly important I mean, because, you know, our medium is movement. And that feeling is, I think, the first spark of how you will interpret this either beautiful or exciting or sorrowful or heartfelt piece of music. I don't mean to take over your talk show. But, uh, <laughs> you know what was really interesting to me when you were talking about um, how a composer and Tchaikovsky, because I'm also obsessed with Tchaikovsky, and it's, it's very interesting to compare to choreographers and composers and writers and artists that it's, I, I, I can't imagine sitting uh, or standing, I don't know what you all do, <laughs> but, uh, and coming up with music out of nothing. And it's very similar to, I, I really don't have an understanding what me and Keon and Annabella Pesachoa, another choreographer in this program, that we go into a studio and, well, at least I don't do any homework. <laughs> so I'm, I come in and I just try to choreograph something. 
But it's really interesting to hear how artists create from nothing. It's the most magical thing. It's like being in a fugue state almost. It's like there's nothing, and then you work for hours and hours and hours, and then there's something. And I get that question a lot, like, how do you come up, how do you come up with these ideas? How do you come up with how it's going to be? And I, I don't know. It just, it, it happens, right? It's like I go in, I start moving around, the dancers start moving around with me, and I'm like, I don't know what we're going to create. And then in two weeks, we've created something. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like magic. And Ollie, it's not just because you wake up at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I do too. My husband's a high school principal, so I have to. So I don't think that that's the recipe. Thank you, Ed. And as, as Cher, you can always take over the talk show. <laughs> um, one of my favorite composers, Samuel Barber, the great American composer, uh, was a... Uh, sort of lost favor in the 1960s and 70s with atonal music and experimental music. He was more of a, an American Tchaikovsky. And he's the one who's outlasted the experimental sort of granola crushed glass composers. <laughs> 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 Whenever a conductor talks to you before a concert, it's never a good thing. If you're going to have to listen to something, you really don't want to hear. Um, but yet, uh, Joseph, well, however, your music is so much fun and so joyful. The orchestra absolutely loves it. Uh, but Barber uh, said you have to believe in your material. And he wrote in a, in a, in a melodic, traditional sense. Um, and he had a great melodic sense. But like with film music, how do you know if, if what you're writing is good? Do you run it by somebody? Do you say, do you yeah. like this? Or do you just believe in it and go over it? I had a secret weapon. <laughs> My, uh, my wife is incredible at knowing if something's good or not. And she, um, I will literally can spend two weeks on something and then play it to her. And I just know there's this pause at the end of it. I'm like, oh no. No. And so then I have to start again. And I then literally, she, is, she knows. And, and bizarrely, her and, um, and her father should work in the pop industry. Because they can just tell a hit straight like that. Her father can just say, that would be the, 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 the track that does work on that album. Um, and because, you know, we're very, very close to what we're creating, too close to it. So we can get excited by stuff that actually really isn't very good. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, with me, I write very quickly. So there's an enormous amount of dross that I create. Um, and, and, you know, so fortunately, my wife just says, that does work. That's an idea. Run with it. So, yeah. She's brilliant. Yeah, she, really she is amazing at doing it. So. It's great. So, you have an in house critic. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah no, no one would want an in house critic, but most critics would be, you know, a, a pathetic in comparison. She's absolutely, that's rubbish. Uh, and you that. I still think I've been doing this for most of my adult life, and I'm still in awe of living composer. Most, all I do is recreate something that's already been written, but having a living composer is such um, a great plus because we can answer questions, you can come and hear us rehearse, you can have feedback. Dead composers are maybe easier because they don't take it away. But living is fun. And you know what's the great thing about ballet and musical theater, more than straight symphony concerts, is that it really lives on new art new dance and new music. 
Um, here in Seattle, we have a really great audience for new music, which is terrific. But around the country, this is really kind of the exception that proves the rule. And uh, if you just did Swan Lake over and over and over again, your audience would get bored and, and dry up. So I think we're really fortunate to have that as a life force for our art form. I think that's, that, that's also something that's, it's a great medium. Um, I pretty much fell into ballet by accident. It wasn't, I didn't set out when I made that first album with a, a London Symphony Orchestra, it wasn't to create ballet music. I was just, I was writing kind of concert hall music. But then, um, but it was choreographers that picked it up and, uh, that, and that turned it into to, to ballets. And so it's this fantastic medium for us because we can express, you know, ourselves and then it, it has this new platform. And that's immensely important, and, and, and it's a, a very inspirational working with. You know, I'm so lucky to have it performed uh, live. If, if, if Pimby hadn't, you know, commissioned me, I wouldn't have had all these experiences. These pieces would not exist without Edward, without Pimby. You know, so I've got to tell you, that's a big, that's a big thing for a composer. Yeah. Seeing as you, I'm a little. Edward. 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 <laughs> How long have we known each other, right? 2017. You mentioned this. <laughs> no, it's it's really incredible to have, um, especially in our industry, both of our industries and together, that we have new compositions and new compositions in dance, new compositions in music, and to have this together is incredible because. Um, through the ages, great art is the distillation of the best of the best. And, you know, for all of us, the only way to break boundaries and see new sights and hear new dance is to explore and to experiment and to fail and to pick yourself up and drive forward. It's incredible. So it's, it's a real testament to, I think, this uh, inspirational craft. You know, new works are creative food for especially a ballet organization. And I think that when we think of new works, we think, oh, that'll be so good for the dancers, or that'll be so good for our audiences. It'll really push them or challenge them or make them see ballet in a different way. But it's also good for our musicians. It's also good for our production team. It's also good for our costume shop. It really gives everybody something fresh to work on, and it really re-inspires them to keep on doing what they love to do. And both Kiel and, and Peter Bowl, they're such incredible leaders in the fact that, you know, when I hear conversations about uh, programming, they are so thoughtful, not only for their dancers, but being able to feed the whole organization, being able to feed uh, maestros here, and the, all the musicians, the dancers, it's this group of con like the consciousness that all need to be fed so they all can all drive in the same direction. And it takes thoughtful leadership and conversations and sensitivity to understand what artists need. That's right, you know, and I, I think that, you know, I, I'll, I'll speak for myself, you know, as a dancer, you're sometimes a little bit selfish, right? Because you're working on your art, your craft, you're trying to make your dancing be as perfect as it can be and sometimes you forget that in order to do the things that you do, the thing that you love every day, it takes such a large group of people 
to make that one performance happen. And as I've moved through my career at PMB, especially into leadership, um, that is something that has stuck with me is that, you know, for, for these performances to take place, it's not just the choreographer or the dancers or the musicians. There's a whole team of people behind the scenes um, that need to be thought about, that need to be thanked, um, that need to have inspiration. And so, you know, I'm glad that Ed, Ed said that, and thank you for saying that about our, our thoughtful leadership, I mean, because it's something that Peter and I really do think about when we're programming the season. It's about not just what's happening in the studio, but how does that work for everyone else? I mean, down to the marketing team, so. I mean, back to Neil, is that it, it is also about survival, because who wants to hear all that glass clinking all day long? <laughs> 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 Oliver, when you are working, you mentioned that you, prior to kind of tumbling into the ballet world, as I did as well, sort of head over heels, and there you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you were composing a lot of concert hall works as well. When you're working on a collaborative project, for example, with Ed or, or, or any other sort of ballet project, can you talk a little about how your compositional process feels different and whether it feels either maybe more isolating, more more fulfilling in some way, versus when you're writing just sort of standalone works of music. So yeah, I mean, for me, I'm flicking between the one world and the other. So a lot of the time, yeah, it's I'm, I'm working on my next album. Um, what I find is that um, it, it it's it's quite difficult to get inspired just by yourself. If I know I'm writing for a well, for for a choreographer. Um, there's a, there's a huge purpose to it, as opposed to me just, because when I'm, I'm, I'm writing there and I'm either sitting at the piano or I'm you know, playing into a Mac or whatever, um, effectively what I'm doing is I'm sort of jamming with myself. Right, that's what happens. <laughs> that's, I, mean, I want to put it in a more, I love the, the picture you paint, that people kind of envisage this walking through the forests with a score. It never happens, does it? It's just literally just really hard work. But what happens is that um, I, when I the, the difference between the two. So when I when I'm writing for for ballet, um, there there are parameters, um, and so those parameters are actually can be very they're quite inspirational in a way because you're not somebody that completely blank page. It's a very quite quite tricky thing to deal with a blank page where you can, I can walk into the studio and literally do anything. Um, and that's not very helpful. What's really helpful is, is you know, knowing, also apart from anything else, just knowing that this is, this is going to be somewhere around, you know, 25 to 28 minutes, let's say, right? So that immediately, we know it's going to be in about five or six sections. That's generally what we do, isn't it? So when I'm, when I'm writing it, I'm, I've got in my mind right from the beginning about the arc, about everything that everyone's been saying to me, about all, you know, those things have an enormous impact on me. Um, Keon, the, the, the way you were describing, it's so similar, that, that, the communication. Um, and, and, and like you said, you know, playing out those things, and she immediately gets it. And that's exactly how it feels. Now, what they don't know is that we go away and, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, the, 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 but there's such a sense of purpose to that. The other thing is when it's concert hall, and often it's, it's like um, violin concertos I write a lot of, and I, I picture the violinist playing it a lot. Mm -hmm. I actually picture them, that particular person, or that pianist, 
And uh, that's quite helpful. I even picture the venue, and that sounds odd, but the, 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 um, that, that picture in my mind is, is quite useful. Um, but essentially, I, mean, yeah, I don't wish to sort of belittle the whole process, but I am basically jamming with myself until I get excited by an idea and then I work on it. And I, I, what I tend to do is feed through two-minute ideas. And then, you know, short sketches to about but then I, when, when he likes it, then I'm, I'm going to expand it. It's kind of the process. Now, it's an interesting thing how sometimes creativity needs a form of resistance, maybe, to really kind of be, be fully born. That yeah. sort of blank page agoraphobia is a, is a very real, is a very real thing. Yeah. Um, and as choreographers, I imagine that the music sort of provides some of that. And I, do, do you ever feel like it sort of flows in the, in the other direction, for example, like, do you feel like thinking in any way about dance or movement helps? Ma massively, because um, Ed Wood would say to me, <laughs> <laughs> "I've got to get used to this new thing." So, so Ed Wood would say, "Keep trying." That uh, that you know, this this piece, um, like you were saying before, I mean, for example, typically we sometimes have sort of uh, two paradigms. But the second one could be far more reflective. And that is, that in, in itself, there's a huge amount of information there. So I could, and also because I, I'm writing in these sh short sketches, I can kind of start to think, wait a minute, why don't I quote bits of those earlier sections that everyone's inspired me to write, you know? So. So um, the ballets that you're going to see, they're, they're not, story ballets uh, in the traditional sense. But I'm just curious, is there, um, I don't know, a subtext of a story or, or a, more than just a mood? Do you, do, you have, do you make a story in your head for even your abstract ballets? Yes, uh, for me, I, I have to. Uh, I'm an emotionally charged, uh, I guess, individual and I need that impetus to like create. Um, the positive thing is that I don't really get scared of an empty studio. I'm very much like Keon and um, Ollie's that I work really fast, um, sometimes to a fault. But uh, the piece that you're going to see is my second, I guess, not try, but uh, dialogue about the in-between. And what I mean by the in-between is uh, whatever you believe is heaven or the um, the great beyond, uh, the, what where we are now and the in between. So between living and the great beyond. And the reason why I called it the veil between worlds is because I I definitely don't believe don't believe that this this wall or this other world is very far. And it's these veils or these ideas that we can't, to give you an example, the biggest thing and the biggest lie to me that we say to each other is that we can't see each other. I see everybody very clearly, just like we read body language, but we all pretend in this weird sort of premise that we, that um, we don't see each other because it's safer. And uh, I wanted these, th 
this type of ballet to still be open-ended, but to give you an example, the first potida is that they've made a pact, almost like Romeo and Juliet, where they decide to come to the stage, and the stage is the in-between. And throughout the generations of lives that they make a pact to go and find each other. They're like twin souls. Um, sorry, that's the second potida, the second. So that each part of the potida is quick vignettes of different lifetimes and different times that they find each other in the world. So that's really kind of what we talked about, but we wanted it this time to be more uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm the complete opposite. I don't, I don't see myself as a storyteller in the traditional sense. Um, when people watch my works, I want, it, it's more I want them to feel feel something, right? And I don't, you know, I, I think that there's a place in the art world for lots of different things, for stories, for you to be challenged as audience members, but I think there's also a place where you can just look at something that's beautiful and then just enjoy it, right? And I think that you need all of those things because if everything challenged you to think really hard, you don't really get that escapism that art provides, right? Art is a way for you to sometimes escape the realities of what you're going through in your lives, what's happening in the world. It can also act as a commentary as well. But I also, you know, there is that moment where you just, for me, when I go to museums and, you know, I look at art, sometimes you just see something and you go, that is just beautiful to look at. I don't have to think too hard about what does the artist want me to try to get out of that? Am I missing something? Am I not smart enough to understand what, what they're trying to get me to understand? I can just look at it and just take a breath and say, that is just beautiful. And I can just stand here and look at it and not have to do anything but just be. And so when I make works, I want you to feel joy. I want you to feel uplifted. I want you to be able to take a moment from anything you might be, ex be experiencing and just feel uplifted. You know, and those are the kinds of works I create. You know, I feel I have this light on the inside. In my dancing career, I was able to use performance as an amplifier to get that light out to share with all of you. And I think that through my choreography, it also acts as an amplifier of that joy that I have inside to just really spread far for all of you. And so I use that vehicle um, to do that and, and not, not to traditionally tell a story. Um, I will say about Throws of Increasing Wonder that the inspiration was about the feelings that you get when you receive a gift. Surprise mystery, um, increasing wonder, joy, gratitude. Like those are the words I come to, but I never set my dancers down and said, this ballet is about um, X or Y. It's about a feeling. Um, and that's kind of how I approach my works. There's a, uh, I'm always kind of a little bit surprised when you get in the theater because we spend so much time at the Pop Center, which is our big rehearsal studio, come to the theater, you have all the extra elements, you have the costumes, lights, and sets. And I, I usually don't know what the, sets look like because I'm, I'm not in that part of the building so all the music but uh, it's so it looks so different as, as choreographers how much uh, do you let go to let the costume designer design whatever they want or the set design the Keon's ballet starts in a, in a very magical way I won't give it away but it's very theatrical with projections and a lot of moving parts do, do you think of those things or do you just collaborate with somebody and just let them let their imagination run I brought all those things to the table and, um, you know, usually I don't work with props and sets and, you know, I'm a put the curtain up and let my dancers just dance kind of choreographer. 
Um, but for the 50th, I wanted to take some chances and take some risks. And so I did work with you know, our production team and we created some set pieces. Um, but what I learned early on in my career is I'm, you know, I'm a huge collaborator and I like for the team of people around me to have some, you know, some sort of uh, freedom. But when I was younger, I made a mistake and I sort of let everybody on my team do exactly what they wanted to do. And that didn't work out so well for me. You know, like all the ideas were all over the place. And when everything came together, I was like, oh my God, none of this goes together. The music is doing this. The costumes don't really go with what I was trying to do. The choreography is this. And so what I learned was as a choreographer, you actually are sort of like the mini artistic director of your, of your work. And you, you, know, you don't want to hamper people and to pin them in too much, but it's really important that the team of people that you're working with understand sort of what the world is you're trying to create so that each of the different pieces, when they come together, they make sense. Um, if, if you don't give them enough, enough to go on or enough direction, it's hard to kind of reel them in when you're, you know, three weeks before the premiere and you're like, actually, everything we talked about, change it. <laughs> and then they want to kill you, so. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely agree. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's really an amazing thing. Uh, look, being able to look at a piece that you've created, you're very much a director. It's, it's live theater that you're directing and creating and choreographing, and um, it's it's a very interesting conversation to always be collaborative and understand what your collaborators want to say as well and how they contribute, but there can't be too many cooks in the kitchen, right? And we all have to um, grow in one direction, in one vision. So it's very important that we're all on the same page. But uh, most of the time, uh, it really depends on the project. It really depends um, on the collaborators. Yeah, certainly. Well, you're in for a real treat tonight, and I hope you will consider coming back for one of the actual performances, because this is still a working rehearsal. Because uh, the other great thing I love about ballet is every performance is different. It could be our rep ballet, it could be seven different shows, basically. Swan Lake, the curtain goes up. A lot of the time, the conductor's not even sure what's going to happen, because it's, <laughs> the answers might be on, they might, they might be a little tired, you have to help them, so it doesn't work like they're tired, they might be so energetic that you just want to stretch a moment for them, but it's, that's what I love about conducting for dance, is that the performances are never the same. So you can come to all seven, and you'll see seven different shows <laughs> when you want to Thank you so much for joining us here. Oh, such great collaborators and great artists. So Thanks, Emil. You're great at this. Yeah. <laughs>